Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie, a PhD student at Northwestern University. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Margaret O'Mara, a professor of history at the University of Washington. We'll be discussing her stunning new book called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. It was published just last month by Penguin Press. Seventy years ago, Silicon Valley didn't exist. There was no Apple campus, no Googleplex, just sleepy towns, orange groves, and prune trees. Today, the valley, now called Silicon Valley, is a center of the global economy. Margaret O'Mara pulls readers along for a fast-paced narrative of how the valley became Silicon Valley and how it fundamentally transformed our world. The book narrates, among other aspects of the valley, the rise of the military-industrial complex, the origins of personal computing, and the continuing thread of gender politics that would eventually bring us the tech bro. The book will interest historians of technology, politics, and culture, along with anyone, professional or casual, who wants to know how Silicon Valley got to be so influential and important. I hope you enjoy our interview. I'm speaking with Margaret O'Mara about her new book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. It was an awesome book, and I'm really gl- glad that we are getting a chance to talk about it. Well, it's thank you so much. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. So just to get started, uh, how did you become a historian interested in Silicon Valley? Well, I think it's a two-part question. How did I become a historian? I actually came in a kind of unusual way. I spent five years working in Washington, D.C. in politics. Um, I had the the good timing or the dumb luck or who knows what to uh, go to work in 1992 on a presidential campaign, the campaign of Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and um, they won. <laughs> and, uh, and so I ended up uh, spending the first five years after college, working in Washington, D.C., working, um, among other things, in the West Wing of the White House and and seeing power close up. And, um, uh, you know, I joke sometimes that I went to history grad school because I didn't want to go to law school like everyone else. <laughs> I didn't want to become a lawyer. <laughs> but, I, but it also was, was shaped by what I did when I was there. I, funnily enough, did not work on tech issues. Um, I worked on economic policy. Um, and I also worked on... Um, uh, welfare reform, uh, healthcare reform, and urban policy and urban investment reinvestment uh, programs. And um, you know, I, I had this lesson that that one learns in first of all, Washington runs on young people, young you know, badly paid people who will work very very hard. And so, as a relatively young person, I had a lot of exposure to. Uh, I was doing some pretty cool stuff. Um, but you also you acquire this somewhat superficial expertise. You beca- you do become an expert, but you become an expert in the here and now. You become an expert on how certain programs work circa, you know, the early to mid-90s when I was there. And I had very little sense of how we got to here. And I think the turning point for me was was work on welfare reform, um, something that started off was a campaign promise of Clinton's as sort of a centerpiece of his becoming a new Democrat, a different sort of Democrat, a centrist Democrat. And in the first couple of years of the of the administration, um, a group of people, including me, worked very hard to craft welfare reform legislation that would change the system, but also in some way created something of an alternative safety net that was going to ensure that the realities of what were often young single mothers going to work, um, that they had the sort of support they needed, like childcare and transportation and all those things. And so while we were off in a corner being good, you know, diligent uh, liberals trying to trying to 
figure out how to thread the needle on on welfare reform, then um, then a, a political revolution happens in the form of the the Gingrich revolution. The House and the Senate go from Democrat democratically controlled to Republican controlled, and and Newt Gingrich and the new conservatives in the House had a very very different idea of what social policy should look like and what welfare reform looked like. Um, and it made me realize, well, one, that the painstaking business of legislation can't be kind of operating in a bubble that isn't recognizing broader political dynamics. And also that there were a lot of lessons from history that I didn't know and that I hoped, I, I wish that policymakers had been um, internalizing and understanding more as we were as we were going forward. So that's really what, what motivated me to, to get in this business in the first place. Hmm. And can you speak a bit more about how you became interested in Silicon Valley? Yeah, so Silicon Valley, I again kind of came in um, through the side door, so to speak. I I didn't enter graduate school thinking I was going to be a historian of technology. I thought I was going to be a historian of, of a political historian um, and a historian of social policy. Um, I was interested again coming in with having worked on these social policy programs. Um, that's what I thought I was going to do. And I came to the topic because I was interested in writing a dissertation that focused on the 1950s. And part of this was the opportunistic grad student, you know, who's trying to figure out, oh, I'm going to write about something people aren't writing about. And at the time, there was a lot of work on the 60s. And there was not as much on the 50s in terms of domestic policy and social policy and economic development policy. And then as I got into that, I realized that the real story of the 50s, of course, was the Cold War and what the domestic economic effects of the Cold War were. And so that's then I kind of morphed into that. And then I realized, well, really, if we're thinking about the economic impact of the Cold War, the lasting one has been the uh, the creation of a new a, a technolo- technology industry, an electronics and computing industry. Um, and so that's how I got to Silicon Valley. Uh, I, I a project that was my dissertation that became my first book, Cities of Knowledge, which was a comparative study of three places, Silicon Valley being one of them, the other two being Philadelphia and Atlanta, and trying to show that these were all, um, not only were these all places that were in the race to become uh, electronics hubs or defense-oriented or scientific scientific industry clusters, um, that it, but also that, you know, there was an important role of, of space and geography in that. It was, um, you know, the, the question really answered by my first book is why is high tech in the suburbs and what did the Cold War have to do with it? Um, and mass suburbanization and Cold War, um, the, the military industrial complex happening, um, happening simultaneously actually had a, you know, they were in, intertwined phenomena. And, um, and so it was, you know, how did we get to all these research parks, which is funny because now you look at tech and you not only see research parks, but there's a lot of urban tech now. Um, mm-hmm. The geography of tech, particularly in the last 15 years has changed quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really want to talk more about sort of the, the shifting geography of the tech industry. Um, but before we get um, all the way there, uh, I want you to kind of just set the scene for us. Uh, let's say you're, you know, driving through uh, the the Santa Clara um, Valley um, in, let's say, the 1930s. Um, you know, this is going to be the future home of Silicon Valley. What do you see? Lots of fruit trees, lots of fruit orchards. <laughs> you know, the Santa Clara Valley was very much like many other agricultural valleys in California. Um, uh, you know, originally Mexican ranchos created these very large, you know, these large land grants created these very large agribusiness enterprises. Um, uh, and it was mostly fruit growing. You would go down, um, uh, you know, you, but there were a couple of things that interrupted that landscape. Um, one was, um, were military, the presence of the military, particularly the the predecessor to NASA, NACA, had a facility in Sunnyvale that later becomes a NASA facility and an important part of this this story that I tell in the book, uh, and uh, and also Stanford University, which was founded in 1890 by a railroad baron and his wife on their former horse farm, which they deeded in toto to Stanford, about 8,000 acres of land, one of the um, provisions of the founding grant was that Stanford was never allowed to sell, allowed to sell the land, which was kind of a bad economic bargain for the first 50 years of its existence, and then became an extraordinary wealth creator for Stanford uh, in the in the post-war, 
post-World War II period as the peninsula suburbanized and as electronics industries um, started moving to the area. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, it's it's really uh, um, almost incomprehensible just how much change, uh, you know, the Valley undertook, uh, you know, in the, the decades that you read about in your book. But um, it's it's especially hard to imagine the, the Valley just filled with, you know, prune trees and orange groves. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I did a, uh, I actually early on did a search. Uh, I mean, thank God for OCR and these, these da- newspaper databases. And I decided to do a search of mentions of, of San Jose or the Santa Clara Valley in national meaning East coast based newspapers in the 1920s, just for, just for fun. And the only thing I could find was, um, mentions of, of prune week, which were the kind of the San Jose chamber of commerce, um, boosters did this annual prune week every February. whose uh, whose motto was eat a prune a day, keep the doctor away. So that, that was what, when you thought Santa Clara Valley, if you thought about it at all, you thought about prunes. <laughs> and, and so, and yes, there were some, you know, but there were sparks, there were signs, like any, you know, the presence of a, of a university um, meant that there were clusters of, you know, there were, there were people in workshops around Palo Alto who were, um, you know, tinkering around with radio equipment. And, and in a way it was, this was a very common thing in the early decades of the 20th century. You had these little clusters of ferociously industrious people who were inventing things. And, but it was, and it wasn't just in California. It was in, you know, places like Dayton, Ohio, where the Wright brothers and NCR were. Um, it was, you know, you name your city, you found um, inventors. There was extraordinarily, you know, Americans were very prolific, particularly in the late 19th century and early 20th century in terms of young American men tinkering with things and, and filing patents and trying to start companies. This kind of startup instinct is not an entirely modern invention. Mm-hmm. So if we were to imagine Silicon Valley today, uh, you know, like it's sort of like in the popular imagination, an imagination that's not yet informed by uh, your book. Um, we might think of things like, you know, free markets, entrepreneurs, self-made billionaires. Um, what do the origins of Silicon Valley say about that image? Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that turns the fruit trees into transistors effectively is World War II and the Cold War and the government's decision to to do something it's never done before, which is get into um, I'm talking about the federal government, get into the sponsorship of research and development, scientific science and technology in a big way, in a, in a significant way. And, um, and this kind of becomes what Stanford's uh, Dean of Engineering and later Provost Fred Terman, who's an important character in the early part of this book, what he terms a wonderful opportunity for a place like Stanford, which was sort of, you know, had a decent reputation, but was not top ranked yet to really remake itself and become the perfect Cold War university. Mm. Uh, Can you say a bit more about that? Um, What what is this relationship with the federal contracts and the war? So, so there's this, you know, tsunami of military spending that, that washes over the country, but particularly over the Pacific coast. So you have, you know, up and down the Pacific coast, you have aerospace and, and, um, Seattle, you have also have aerospace industry in LA. In the Bay Area, you have all sorts of different defense-related activity um, that is uh, taking place, you know, and affiliated with Berkeley as well as Stanford. But in the San Francisco Peninsula, around Stanford, around um, Sunnyvale, that this specialization very quickly is becomes small electronics and and communications devices, microwave, radar, um, transistorized technology very cutting edge, but different than building airplanes. Um, and, and the, the, but this tsunami of spending, you know, think about this, this is the late forties and early fifties. This is the era of, you know, this is McCarthyism. This is a time when, you know, the reason that all this spending is happening in the first place is, is as part of the, the competition with the Soviets, um, not only to build more powerful weapons, but also to produce more scientists and to, you know, send men into space and to orbit faster than the Soviets and prove this scientific supremacy. But if the whole point is to compete with and distinguish uh, the American system from the Soviet system, the last thing that lawmakers like Dwight Eisenhower 
have any inclination to do is, is create these giant government research labs that internalize everything. And so really this giant, instead, the giant research lab becomes decentralized into, and the money flows through in good part, these, uh, these other institutions, public and private universities, private industry, indirectly creating this whole parastatal network of entities that are vastly enriched by and transformed by Cold War spending, but also, you know, turning it into something of a, of a hidden presence. Um, and the other thing about this indirect flow of spending, where in, instead of building a digital computer inside an army laboratory, the army instead gives money to, in the case of the first all-digital computer, the University of Pennsylvania in the 1940s, to develop something there. And, and relatively speaking, this can, you know, continues to the fifties and sixties and on and on. It's a lot of money flowing in the direction of this industry and these, these disciplines with not a lot of strings attached with a lot of room for invention and creation and iteration. There's a lot of investment in basic research, not just applied research. There's a lot of investment in the R as opposed to the, the R of research as opposed to the D of development, although there's a lot of investment in that too. There's a lot of investment in education, K through 12 education, as well as higher education, particularly in the sciences and mathematics and engineering. So there's a, a great deal. What I, what I describe in the book is this, this Cold War public sector foundation that creates uh, a perfect platform on which entrepreneurial activity can grow and flourish and really building an industry in a way that makes the people who are leading that industry feel like they're doing it all on their own. And that's really the, the secret. That's one reason that other places around the world have had such a hard time. You know, they've wanted to build Silicon some things and oftentimes the, you know, the lawmaker or leader will say, uh, we we are going to build a science city and put it here. Well, you know, Dwight Eisenhower never proclaimed we shall build a science city in the San Francisco Bay Area, but yet one happened. Um, and so there's this, it's a story of unintended consequences, but it is a story in which government's long range investments and the sorts of investments that were being made in this golden quarter century after World War II, a quarter century in which, by the way, there was not, you know, most of the meaningful industrial competition was in rubble after World War II. So it was very easy. It's easy to be generous <laughs> um, when you're uh, both on the corporate side and on the, the governmental side when there isn't as much competition um, and, and balance sheets are feeling flush. Uh, so this, this particular, you know, what I wanted to root this in, in, in this book, kind of the reason I start in the 40s, I go all the way to now, but this is a trade book. It's it's not only um, designed to engage an academic conversation and make Silicon Valley, you know, I would like my fellow historians to really put Silicon Valley into the center of this broader narrative of modern American history. So what I strove to do was show these interconnections between you know, the political history we write and the social history we write and teach and show how Silicon Valley is both a product of that and shaping that. But I also wanted to show a an audience of tech users and the tech curious and a business audience, um, including people inside tech today, to understand how we got to right now, how the the software eating the eating the world has is the product of seven decades of history, and to understand the business culture and and also to understand the continuing engagement between the public sector between Washington D.C. and Silicon Valley, the tech industry writ large we have to recognize that there's a longer political history here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think that's something that your book does just uh, remarkably well is showing this relationship between, um, you know, the state and uh, the private sector. And, you know, it's not, not just that they're, um, you know, interacting or they're, um, you know, uh, depending on one another, but that um, like the way that the federal money was dispersed um, with very few strings attached um, actually produced the mindset of Silicon Valley as this like entrepreneurial, you know, like uh, a free market place. Yeah. And, and I should add, you know, that, that, that entrepreneurial, you know, uh, brilliance is, is very much part of the book and part of the story. Um, and, and this is also, I think, a, a, a cautionary, you know, I think we too, those, those of us who um, 
studied the history of American politics and the American state sometimes can put the state back in. Um, and we never want to, <laughs> to, to, to no, no pun intended, overstate the case, right? Um, that part of really understanding the political economy, particularly the political economy of modern America and post-industrial America, is to recognize this interplay between public and private. And what I do also show in the book, um, you know, I, it's funny, I went into the project thinking, well, everyone's written so much about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and I don't need to talk about them. I'm going to talk about other people who aren't them, which I do in the book. I really tried to introduce characters and and types of people that illustrate that this is a, you know, a, a community effort, a team effort. <laughs> it took a village to build all these companies, um, more than a village. And uh, there are a lot of other people who are an important part of the story that sometimes get overlooked. But I, but also th- there's a reason that so much ink has been spilled um, in analyzing and trying to understand people like Jobs and Gates and Bezos and Zuckerberg, because there are things about them that um, enabled their companies to break from the pack and to become market dominant. Um, so really recognizing this, you know, how do we, and I think this is a challenge, sort of a broader historiographic challenge, particularly for those of us who who write about the state and public policy, um, is to think about how we put the people in, um, how we put the personalities in and the human stories in, including the human stories of, you know, presidents and lawmakers who are just as fallible and interesting <laughs> as and textured as all the rest of us. Um, and, and also show, you know, show how the top down meets the bottom up in a way that is um, creating a compelling narrative and, and recognizing that all of these institutions, whether it be a big corporation or a small startup or a university or a government agency, they are, they aren't just institutional monoliths. They are not just acronyms. They're filled with people. They're, they have certain leadership and then they also have people in the rank and file and the other, you know, lesser known um, aspects of their leadership that, that make them what they are. And, and so that was something that I tried to be very mindful of in the book. And again, the, to understand Silicon Valley, you cannot say it's all or nothing. It is not all a big government Cold War story. Um, and by the way, the government story doesn't go away after the Cold War. It, you know, goes on in many different ways, you know, uninterrupted fashion until the present day, not only the defense economy, the Pentagon never goes away um, from Silicon Valley story. DARPA is extraordinarily important to, to this day, but also you have lobbying, you have inter- interplay between elected officials of both parties and technology executives and venture capitalists that is a, a constant from a, a constant, a hallmark of the last 40 plus years of the Valley's history. Mm-hmm. So you've already kind of gestured towards some of the some, some of the answers to this question that I'm going to ask, um, but I was hoping that you could maybe uh, say a bit more. So you were playing two games with this book. You know, you're, uh, you're playing an academic game. You're, you're, you know, writing for an academic audience. And, you know, tons of your readers are going to be, um, you know, historians and mm-hmm. political scientists and so on. But then you also are writing for th- the public. This is a very hard. Uh, it's, it's very hard to play these two games simultaneously. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced, uh, and perhaps what what have been the payoffs? Yeah, um, it's been really challenging. I'll be honest. This, I've, this is my third book. It's by far the hardest one I ever had to write. Um, uh, the it, because I was trying to do both things, um, uh, and and really, you know, my for, foremost, I I really. I wanted, I, I thought we really, the, the trade market, the broader market needed a biography of Silicon Valley that, that was accessible, that was written, that a non-technologist could understand. Um, and that was also neither, you know, unreservedly cheerleading nor tearing things down. Um, um, and, uh, it, and just simply telling the history, try as, as fairly as, as one possibly could. Um, but it was challenging. I think the, my, my answer to that, and I think it's something that I will take forward in all of my writing, even when I am writing, you know, for purely academic audiences is to, you know, lead with the lead with the people rather, rather than leading with the argument. Um, there's a very important role for work that leads with an argument. Um, but what I've discovered is through the book was that how I could advance an argument by leading with the stories of individuals and how they could be my, you know, they could carry my story forward. And now that I've 
kind of built up that muscle, I, I don't want to, don't want to let it wither. Um, <laughs> but it also is a way too, I think for, um, uh, you know, engaging, I wanted, you know, this is, this is designed to engage a wide range of readers who are coming at it from different levels of expertise. And I also, I'm also wanting to make a case to my fellow academics of the importance of this story. You know, this will be just as the textbooks have the large section on Rockefeller and Carnegie and et al and the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. You know, the textbooks of 50 and 100 years from now will have a similar, I I would imagine, give similar weight to the stories of Bezos and Zuckerberg and and the phenomena of, of the technology industry. And and so, you know, how, and also it's getting, it's, it's old enough now that enough dust has settled that you can bring our tools of historical analysis to, to the, to the topic in a way that might not have been possible only recently. Um, you know, we are now getting into the history of the 21st century, believe it or not. And, um, but this isn't just a 21st century history. This is a 20th century history. This is a, you know, post-1945 history. But really, I could have started the book in the 19-teens had I wanted to. Um, that was another, I think probably the, the, the ultimately the biggest challenge in the book was deciding what to put in and what to leave out because it's an extremely big story. And I didn't want to end up with a you know, thousand page behemoth that no one would read and quite frankly, and no one would publish for that matter. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and, and so I, I really, you know, not every, not everything is in, there are still as, as many stories there are here, there are ones that have yet to be written. There are ones where I was able to, you know, devote a, a page and a half to something that really is, has fodder for at least 20 dissertations. So um, I hope if anything, my book will also be a, a good, um, a good, kind of trail of breadcrumbs for the next generation of scholars who are starting to look at Silicon Valley with, and the technology industry with the same sort of lens who are coming at it from um, the lenses of labor history and social history and history of capitalism and political history, um, as well as uh, the continuing important work in the history of science and technology. I mean, incredibly important work has been produced um, recently and, and, and over the past decades. And I, you know, at the end of my book, I had a, I had a very long, I have a very long section on sources that uh, is designed in, in part for the, the general interest reader who wants to learn more and learn more from all of the, the work that I have learned from. Yeah, there were several moments in the book where I thought this could be spun off into, uh, yeah, like another book at least. Yeah. But it's but it is a, it's just such a big story. It's a really big story. It's a really big story, and it's it's a fun. I mean, there's fun stuff too. Like there, are, you know, stories that I uncovered that were you know just made me giddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and connections. There's sort of this wonderful. Um, it, I mean, one of the hallmarks of the valley, and the part of what makes it go, and also part of what makes creates some of its problems for itself, is it's so tightly networked and everyone's connected. I would have, you know, I was interviewing these 90 something year old venture capitalists and they would, you know, they're all living in the same retirement community and all have lunch together every other Tuesday. So I could just sit in the, you know, have a club sandwich with them and talk about the fifties and sixties. And they're all, they've been having lunch together you know, for 60 years. <laughs> they're all friends. <laughs> yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you, you ended up doing uh, several oral history interviews um i think like like two and a half dozen or something like I that did. I did um, but i guess but i but i guess if they're all living together it's it's not uh, <laughs> um, uh, as arduous as um the bibliography would suggest yeah um so that's actually a great lead to another question that i wanted to ask um which is um about the geography of silicon valley uh and so um why does it matter that Silicon Valley is geographically so far from Washington and New York? Um, I think it mattered tremendously. I, I, I'd call it in the book an entrepreneurial Galapagos, um, where isolation encouraged the creation of very distinctive species of business enterprise and business services. So it's not just the distinctiveness of the high-tech startup Silicon Valley style. But it also is high tech venture capital. There's venture capital, venture capitalists all over, and I and I I talk quite a bit about non valley based venture capitalists in the book. But those who were in in Silicon Valley, many of them were former 
uh, they're engineers. They were in the industry before and they had a, they had a hit and they turned to venture capital. We still see this happening now. You know, the, the people who are made rich by the previous generation get to pick the winners of the next. Um, and they were by and large pretty, the, the first generation were, were men of, of modest means. Their great advantage was being, um, uh, educated white men in post-war America. <laughs> um, there, you know, there's a reason there weren't a lot of women venture capitalists at the, at the outset. Um, and, uh, it, but they were coming from, you know, middle-class families in the middle part of the country. Their reason, one of the reasons they ended up in California was because they, they didn't have connections. They weren't Ivy leaguers who'd gone to prep school and could go to their friend's father's bank or go into some f- fortune 50 company. They, um, they were coming out to create lives for themselves and create a professional future for themselves. And then there were also some who might've had those connections and decided sort of personality wise, that was too boring for them. So they came out. So you have this mix of people who are, who are geographically isolated. They're also isolated from San Francisco. It's 40 miles South of San Francisco. Um, then, and now it's still an hour on the train. I took the Caltrain yesterday. It's, it hasn't sped up anytime, uh, any, anytime soon. Um, and, uh, and it was, you know, you were, had this in a way kind of forced to spend all of your time together. So people worked tremendously hard, um, uh, it work hard, play hard. And then they would go to the, one of the, you know, two bars that were around afterwards and drink together and socialize with their families and their kids would play little league together and they all lived in the same neighborhoods. And, you know, so there are these really tight personal and professional connections that develop and these venture capital firms, law firms, and real estate developers that are completely oriented towards the, the electronics slash technology industry. Real estate development is part of the story. It's, I mean, talk about geography. I talked about those ranchos earlier. It was made it very, very easy to redevelop large swaths of land in a pretty frictionless way, as they say now in Silicon Valley. So you have these fruit farmers who have these orchards that, uh, you know, one of the, a real estate developer would drive up and say, I'm going to offer you X dollars for your land. X is, you know, two, two times more than you could ever get for it on the agricultural market. And you say, I'm in, I'll, t-, you know, and you sell it. And all of a sudden there are hundreds of acres that can be plowed over, plowed under, and you can build up, tilt up, you know, quick, quick and easy office parks with, you know, in a, just like that. And so, that ease of of you know creation of an industrial landscape was something that was quite different than say Boston, which would which was the other tech capital uh, up until you know the eighties was really not only Silicon Valley's first it's it's big brother and then it's equal and then you know it was, it was quite late in the game when Boston kind of became you know fa- became secondary to the story. Just as a quick aside, I, I actually interviewed uh, Lily Geismer about um, her book uh-huh. uh, about, uh, you know, wrote uh, 128. And it was just a completely different story, even though it's about uh, the same world, so to speak. Yeah. 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 The business culture is different. The people are different. The the driving force is different. The defense industry is extremely important there, too. But there's much more acknowledgement that that's central. <laughs> um and, um, and also there's, you know, it, Boston had, Boston was computing when Silicon Valley was not. Um, and it had, it was the capital of mini computing, which was the, you know, shining star of the industry from the late sixties into the eighties, but then it didn't have a second act. And what's so remarkable about the Valley. And part of this is just lucky. You know, I talked about the, the specialization in small electronics and communications devices, Turns out that those are the things that are the, the the ingredients of the digital revolution to come. It isn't building big refrigerator-sized computers. It's networking those computers and making those computers small. And 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 so what is what does the valley do? It's you know it has these successive technological generations that to the at first glance seem like they're unconnected, and you don't understand like how does today's Facebook connect to Shockley semiconductor, but it does. It does technologically as well as in the people. Technologically, of the tr- silicon transistor. First of all, the Valley makes the bet on silicon as the material for the transistor, as opposed to germanium, which is which was the other, you know, pre- prevalent material. Turns out, silicon's a heck of a lot better to build microchips with. So that gives way to integrated circuit. So more more transistors. 
a more powerful chip. And then that gives way to an even more powerful microprocessor, which was tagged as a computer on a chip. And once you have a computer on a chip, then you can essentially put it in a box and create a personal computer. Um, Not very high powered, but enough to do what it needed to do. And then there comes the personal computer industry. Then you have the higher, higher powered versions of those, the workstations, Sun, Sun Microsystems at Al. And then you, and Silicon Graphics, another defunct company. Um, and then you, then you have the web, which is connecting all those computers, wiring them together, and then creating a whole commercial enterprise, this whole series of platforms, communications platforms that are, so there's sort of the success of technologies and, and they have technological connective tissue and they have connective tissue in the venture capitalists who fund them, who are, again, the, the winners of the one generation fund the winners of the next. And they're not just providing money, they're providing mentorship, they're providing business organization. Why did Apple break out of the pack from all these little personal computer companies that are growing here in the late 70s, which were, you know, a bunch of garage operations? Uh, It's because they got some smart business management early on from a guy like guy named Mike, Mike Markula, who was an Intel executive who was deciding whether to take early retirement and he, you know, he's like 36. And instead he put some of his own money into Apple and came in and helped them run the joint. And they got some early venture capital funding from guys like Don Valentine and uh, Arthur Rock, who were, you know, veterans of the semiconductor industry. And, and, um, and then they had Steve Jobs, the ultimate evangelist, as well as the technical genius of Steve Wozniak. So that was, you know, put that, that formula together and that pumps, you know, pushes it forward. And the countercultural company of Apple that kind of what, you know, always presented itself as a think different sort of place. Actually, part of its secret was that it's got it, it kind of adapted good strategies of basic corporate business organization earlier than some of the other guys in garages. And so that put them ahead of the pack. Yeah. So the computer, it's, it's going to be central to your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and Apple's um, right there. You take your readers into um, sort of like these like intimate spaces of, um, you know, like kind of like early computing hacker communities. Um, you know, like one is the the homebrew club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you, you have these just really lovely sources, um, you know, like the invitation to the first meeting um, that the homebrew computer club held. And, uh, you know, it reads, um, are you building your own computer? terminal, TV typewriter, device, or some other digital black magic box? Or are you buying time on a time-sharing service? If so, you might like to come to a gathering of people with like-minded interests, exchange information, swap ideas, talk shop, help work on a project whatever <laughs> and and these sources just like they, they just give such a, a really nice texture to um, uh, the um, the world that you're describing. And one of the things that's really interesting, and again, you've already alluded to it, is how um, they go from this countercultural world or milieu um, to, uh, yeah, this like more corporate, uh, um, uh, you know, like orientation. Um, how did these two different cultures work? Uh, and, uh, and, and like, and, and yeah, how do we, how do we end up with kind of the, um, uh, yeah, like the, the later Apple that kind of combines them? Yeah. Well, it's, it's very interesting because the, the, yes, this is the Vietnam generation, the sixties generation, baby boomers who are the, the ones who are the, on the ground floor of, of the personal computer industry and which starts off as a, just a hobby, um, you know, guys who are tinkering in their garages. Uh, and, and, and these are people who are many of them in college in the late sixties at Berkeley, at Stanford, they are uh, involved in, or at least sympathetic to the anti-war movement and affected by it. They definitely have, they see what they're doing as political, but it's very interesting and it's different. It shouldn't be just, you know, kind of, Oh, they were countercultural because, or they were new left. (laughs) They weren't new left. They were, you know, they took they they were sympathetic to the goals of the new left, but they saw the answer to the you know the the dilemmas raised by feminists, by the Black Power movement, these questions of inequity, of of uh, of big government and big business having too much control. They saw computing 
and seizing computing power and making it personal. She's, they saw that as the answer. It was a, it was a very techno-optimistic vision. And it's one that becomes the hallmark of Silicon Valley going forward, that if we have the right tech, we can fix it. There's an app for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you know, the funny thing is, is this generation, the homebrew generation, for lack of a better um, uh, shorthand, is you know they are they are into computing in the first place because they went to these universities. It, well, they grew up in the age of the Cold War and the military industrial complex, and at a time when the federal government is putting so much money into science and math education, and so they are you know winning science fair ribbons um, in in the late fifties and early sixties. They're dreaming of going to the moon. Um, they want to be astronauts. They come to college and they become, you know, they major in engineering or they major in a whole host of things, but they they go to the computer lab and they get their first experience and interface with a with a computer, computers that only you could find at universities or at or in big large corporations. Um, and they realize that there's incredible power here. They're very excited by um, the the potential of the computer, but they also were angry that the computers are all in the possession of the man, so to speak. That you know, and it's true. Where where was computing in the late sixties? It was you know they were they were mainframes and minis that were at, humming in government agencies, in um, academic laboratories funded by government, in defense contractors, in in Fortune fifty companies. Um, they, you know, the ultimate gatekeepers were controlling that information. Uh, there was similar kind of agony and, and questioning about, you know, how much information does the computer know and um, the worry about individuals' privacy being violated by electronic data processing. And so the personal computing movement is motivated by, you know, wanting to take those, you know, as, as one of the, the the characters in my book says, you know, to change the rules, change the tools. Um, you, you know, you if you really want to change society, you need to change the technologies we're using and turn them into technologies of empowerment and communication rather than disempowerment and um, and opacity and secrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, another sort of through line uh, in your book it, um, relates to gender politics. Uh, and sort of uh, you you pay a lot of attention to um, sort of the the gender makeup and the racial makeup uh, for that matter um, of these um, you know Silicon Valley types. It's it's I mean it's, it's really fascinating because you can see all the contemporary uh, you know like scandals um, you know like um, with just sort of like the tech bro stereotype, uh, the lack of women and so on, um, and just you can see how this was baked into the Silicon Valley system from the start. And, and and one sort of bit of evidence that you uh, keep on coming back to, and I was really interested in, and I'm, I'm hoping that you can maybe say a bit more about it, mm-hmm. was um, hiring practices. Uh, and so um, just how, um, you know, these, uh, you know, these startups and uh, Silicon Valley companies um, have particular hiring practices that almost enforce uh, um, or um, at least generate um, uh, homogeneity in their workforce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, yes, and it takes takes slightly different forms over the the whole time period, but it's always there. And really, the you know the central center of it is hiring who you know, hiring by referral or something, mm-hmm. someone who's some somewhat of a known quantity. We see this now very frequently. In fact, companies today will sort of trumpet this um, as you know, and, and and encourage their employees to say, "Who do you you know? Tell us who you know. We're recruiting more engineers. We're recruiting more people. We want to hear from you." And so, employee referrals make up a really significant portion of the new hires in tech companies today. And this has been the case going all the way back. Um, I talk about, you know, if we have today, we have companies like Salesforce and Google that do it. In the dot-com era, you have companies like Netscape that are doing it and, you know, you name it. Um, You go, you know, go back earlier um, and you have, and this is a product too of the, you know, the small, the relatively small size of the community, the geographic concentration of the community, like people do know one another. But it is also how people form teams and new startups. It's like, you know, it's, it's a risky business. Um, you're making bets on people who aren't coming in with particular business expertise or management expertise. They're often very young. Um, they're being hired on the basis of their smarts or perceived smarts, their ability to, you know, their technical ability. And also, are they going to be someone who's a good person to work with? Are they going to deliver 
Are they going to be someone who's going to be a team player? And the way that you assess that often is, oh, well, I know this person from graduate school, or I worked with this person for my last company. And so, you know, legendary venture capitalist Arthur Rock talked often about you want to you want to pick a, a grade A man, and of course they were almost always men <laughs> then, and and continue to be, uh, and and you know you're making the choice of you're choosing the person as well as the idea that they're pitching, um, and so this kind of this permeates, and again this is this is part of the secret, this is part of the secret sauce, the magic. Um, that you don't see in other places. It, it has been integral to the Valley's success. It's a bill. And look, it's if you're starting a risky startup, you do want to have some assurance that the person is not going to be, you know, flame out. You do want to have some other reference points to know that okay, there's going to be some personal obligation here, or there's going to be, you know, I'm going to get along with this person if I'm spending 24 hours coding with them. Um, there's an intimacy, especially in these young, small startup companies that. Um, where personal compatibility makes makes a difference, and where culture, quote unquote, culture has become paramount. Um, but then that, coupled with this I, this conviction that so many people in the industry have had that it's a meritocracy, that all we care about is if someone's a good programmer, if they're a good technical person, um, causes you to overlook not only to overlook the biases you might have about what you think a good programmer is or a good technical person is, and I have many examples in the book and, and, and many times I encountered in my research women who were, you know, told and, and men who just really felt that, well, women aren't, can't be technical people. Like that's not, you know, they may have other talents, but you can't have a woman building your operating system. You can't have a woman, you know, doing these critical technical roles because that's not their aptitude. And that's, as we know, is, you know, not something that is, that's still kicking around today. And, and so when you have those biases and those presumptions. And also you're not looking very widely for where your talent's going to come from. If you're always looking to Stanford's computer science program or a small handful of computer science programs, or you're always just focusing first on the people who are known to the people who are already working in the company, (laughs) then it replicates, you know, your circle doesn't widen. And you also might not be identifying talent of you know people who aren't able to be in these very privileged spaces that might not have gotten into one of those elite programs, couldn't afford to. Um, and you're also not bringing people into the room who are asking different questions, who are bringing different product ideas, and maybe answering product problems differently. Saying, "Hey, you know what? Maybe we should you know make sure that this um, this biometric device also monitors women's health and not just men's." Um, you know, that, that, or, or let's think about how our social media product might play in Pakistan, um, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to just in Northern California. So these are all things that are actually kind of critical to the business, especially now the tech is so predominant. It's so critical to, um, you know, being smart and making sure that you're, you know, reaching global markets. There's a bottom line, um, upside here, but, uh, the history, you know, I, I think helps us understand why there are such persistent diversity problems, um, why they're hard to unwind. Um, I think the open conversation that has been going on over the last few years in the Valley around diversity is promising simply because it is a conversation that has never happened before ever. <laughs> and um, if, if anything, people are talking about it, and that's the first step to changing things. Sure. And yeah, and I, I really encourage um, the listeners of this podcast to um, yeah have a look at the book. I mean, just like, you you end up telling the stories of so many women who were up, they were there they were there in like the seventies and the the you know the homebrew club um, they were there in the nineties working for Microsoft mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and you gracefully tell um, uh, their stories. So moving on just a little bit uh, into uh, the nineties, uh, I want to talk about the internet. So, uh, you know, in the early 1990s, uh, the U.S. government, uh, and I, I guess you were there, <laughs> you were there as, uh, uh, you know, uh, a recently graded researcher. Yeah. And so the U.S. government begins to ponder how to regulate the Internet. Uh, and so, you know, Congress um, uh, was leaning towards uh, a pretty, um, you know, strict censorship regime. Um, the Democrats, uh, you know, they, they, they wanted to be seen as, uh, you know, very pro-tech. You have the Atari Democrats. Uh, and and then you have uh, this other guy, Newt Gingrich, um, who becomes one one of the biggest 
um, allies of many in Silicon Valley um, who want to see almost no regulation, um, or at least the regulation to happen at the level of the corporation rather than the government. Can you just say a little bit about uh, these um, regulatory debates and uh, how they shaped the development of the internet? Yeah, well, they're incredibly important. I mean, what happens in the 1990s is um, you know, two things. One is that the government is uh, laying down the infrastructure, what was then called the information superhighway, that allowed the commercial internet to grow and to scale. First, it, it allowed the internet to become a commercial platform in the first place for a very long time. You know, internet was around since six, 1969, of course, but it was restricted to academics who were you know, federally funded academics on grants and people who were inside government agencies until the 1980, late 80s. And then it opens up to commercial, um, to people who wanted to create .com domains, but they couldn't do any business on the internet. They could create a website, but they couldn't actually you know, you couldn't buy or sell. Um, you couldn't make money on the internet. And so in 1991, that changes and that opens up. Um, so there are choices to, you know, open up the internet. There are also choices to in, invest in infrastructure, in the actual telecommunications infrastructure that allows the, the plumbing of the internet to happen and to encourage private industry uh, and telecoms to you know, create a to, to create a way to, for, you know, so not everyone's remember dial up, you know, you have dial up internet, yep. you'd hear the, yeah. the noise, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that there's that, that is, you know, thank you lawmakers in the 1990s. We, we, we moved beyond that. Um, at the same time, there is a, you know, uh, by the middle part of the 1990s, there are enough people going online. And of course, what was one of the, you know, uh, the, the biggest initial growth industry online, it was porn. Um, and so smut online, porn online is really the catalyst for this conversation in Washington. Um, this is 1995, 1996. This is after the Republicans are control of Capitol Hill. Democrats are in the White House. Um, and, uh, you know, what are we going to do about online porn? And this is, you know, and the big question is, that what about the children who are going to be exposed to this horrible stuff? Um, so we need to censor it. We need to find a way to get this stuff. You know, there's other ways to censor it in other media. Um, why, why can't, why is this just, why is it a free for all on the internet? This is, this is terrible. And, um, and, and the Valley pushes back on that, um, pushes back saying, you know what, if you start, if, if Washington writes rules on what can be said and not said on the internet, then that is going to quash free speech on the internet. It's going to quash, you know, what's building here, what the, the miracle of the internet. And these are, you know, Valley people who are internet evangelists. They're people like John Perry Barlow and Mitch Kapor and people, the founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, which continues to be a very important player in these conversations. Um, And they're like, you're you're going to squash the, you know, this this lively conversation and this, and the, the capacity of the internet to become a communications medium that is going to empower people and connect them and remove gatekeepers and allow um, all sorts of new collaboration and creativity. It's a very, you know, techno-optimistic Silicon Valley vision in action. And it's one to which Newt Gingrich, then Speaker of the House, and um, Democrats, including notably Al Gore, who was then Vice President, were very sympathetic to, in part because, um, you know, props to Gingrich and Gore and a few others, like um, Ed Markey is another one I call out in the book, they are really the, the handful of lawmakers on Capitol Hill in the 80s and the early 90s who are paying attention to any of this stuff. Um, they're bringing computer scientists into their offices and asking them about it. Um, Markey, who's, the, who's chairing the telecom subcommittee in the House in this pivotal moment when the Internet is, is being commercialized, is also thinking about things like you know, high-definition television and kind of next-gen technologies that are going to you know, really enable the things that we do now online um, and and really transform the whole media environment. Um, but, you know, Washington lawmakers have, you know, then and now don't have a terribly good track record of being super technologically savvy. Um, and, uh, and, and so there was a bit of, you know, moral panic about porn on the internet in the mid nineties. Um, and, but what comes out of this, the, you know, the, the Valley free speech advocates, um, they they win they and 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 in part because as you pointed out Newt Gingrich was not not a big fan of regulating anything and what the what the valley um, argues and and also the Clinton administration agrees with their argument it's like don't regulate us let us regulate ourselves like just let us take care of ourselves we'll make sure that we don't let 
you know, all this junk run wild on the internet where we'll create some rules. We'll, we'll, you know, we're biz- we're in business. We don't want to alienate whole chunks of our, of our potential audience. Um, but let us regulate ourselves. Don't let the, you know, don't regulate us. And also if you regulate us, you're going to let the big media companies and telecoms win because they're the ones who control, they control the plumbing. They're controlling what gets, you know, what's gets said. Um, it's going to give too much power to these cable providers and these other industries. Um, now that was 1996, right? Um, it, it was a very different internet then. Google didn't exist. Facebook, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg was in middle school. Uh, Amazon had had its website live for less than a year. Uh, there's just a, a, a very different, um, it's just a very different world. And, and it's, you know, and it was the right, in many ways, the decision to, to self-regulate was, you know, made sense at the time. And, and there's a lot of sensibility in it. Would we have had the growth of social media, um, with, without, that without that ability to, you know, for these platforms to be held harmless for what third parties said and did on their platforms? Um, Probably not. Um, You know, and, and so for all, even though right now everyone's piling on companies like Facebook, um, they're, and for for good reason, um, there, we're also, you know, there's a sort of baby with the bathwater danger as well, and not recognizing some of the things that have been produced, not just economically, but also in terms of the sort of, I mean, here we are right now having this conversation that's enabled by, enabled by this, these choices made in the, in the 1990s, you know, to have like all these new out media outlets, all these new podcasts, all these new content producers, all these conversations that were previously just have, you know, being had in, in academic seminar rooms are now free and open for anyone to listen to around the world. And that's, you know, so how do we, I think that's the, you know, I'm not here to make policy prescriptions. I, yes, I worked in policy a long time ago, but that was a long time ago. And I consciously (laughs) switched, switched hats. But I think what historic, where historians can be really, really valuable is in pointing out, okay, here's how we got here and understand the history and understand the rationale for why, you know, certain laws were passed, for example, and, and recognize that, updating is a, is a healthy and necessary thing. Great. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to leave the conversation about your book. Um, but just one final question, mm-hmm. what are you working on right now? Well, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, I've always, you know, whatever I write in the future will have to do with the things. I think the common thread that goes through that, what I've written about before is looking at how powerful people are shaped by their times. And, 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 uh, you know, I've written about presidents and presidential elections, and I've written about Silicon Valley. And I continue to be really interested in, um, in this, that broader project. And also in, uh, you know, just, I, 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 yes, I like, I like disrupting some myths and busting some myths. So uh, I I won't say what the, what the next big project will be, but I will say it will be something about that. Um, In the meantime, I'm doing a couple things that, um, play into why I got into the history business in the first place. I, I came into, I, I got my PhD in history because I wanted to speak to public audiences. F- funnily enough, I was, um, <laughs> I was, I came into graduate school, not thinking I was going to be a professor. <laughs> um, I thought I was going to go back and work in public policy in some way or work in a think tank and, uh, and you know, life changes. Right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it's funny. A lot of people go to graduate school thinking they're going to be a, an academic and then life changes and they end up being doing something else. I was the reverse. Uh, and, but uh, nonetheless, I think, uh, this sort of public engagement is a very important part of what our profession does. And, and those of us who have the, the energy and the interest in doing that should do it. So I've got a couple of things on the, on the, on the burner. One is, um, one is continuing to write op-eds, um, and, and public writing that reaches broader audiences that distills historiography, both my historiography and the broader historiography of American history to, to broader audiences. Um, and the other thing that I'm working on is I'm joining a textbook, a long, a longstanding textbook project, the American pageant. I'm joining Liz, Liz Cohen and David Kennedy as a, um, uh, as a author on that in the, in forthcoming editions. So, um, you know, I think that, that textbooks are a really critical part of, of our whole enterprise in terms of reaching, reaching 
a, a vast number of people and perhaps being their being their first and perhaps their only encounter with certain elements of um, parts of American history. So being able to write that succinctly and carefully and um, with with resonance and relevance is is a daunting task, but a really important one. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, I think the textbooks um, are a form of public history um, because you do reach a, a very sizable audience. Um, so I'll be looking forward to uh, seeing those projects. And I'm also very intrigued by the mysterious myth-busting one, but we'll have to <laughs> wait and find out what that is. Uh, Margaret, I really want to thank you for joining me today. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the New Books in History podcast.